Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast. I always enjoy getting the chance to visit with my friend and study the Word of God together. Rabbi Lipman, how are you and how is your family doing? Thank God we're doing great. Everyone is enjoying their summer, doing the various things that kids will be doing, and, and thank God we're doing great. And we do know that life continues on in the land of Israel. The people of Israel continue to do their their family duties and their work and their study of Torah and all of those things. But you must continue to confront the violence from Gaza. And in many cases, it's more the threat of violence than actual violence because of the defensive capabilities of the Israeli military able to protect the civilian population. But the threat is still there. That is true, and it's important for people to realize, because these are not events that are going to make international headlines, but uh, just a half hour ago, I was on my way home and listened to the news, and they, they send these kites and, and balloons from Gaza that are uh, inflamed, and they land in Israeli fields, and uh, they literally start fires everywhere, especially given the summer heat, and a massive fire was just started near a kibbutz, uh, near Gaza. And there are, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres now that have been burnt uh, because of this. And it's a complicated dilemma for Israel because there's no real enemy to shoot. There's no one to kill to stop them from doing this. Meaning if you see somebody sending it, of course you can hit them, but it's almost impossible to monitor somebody letting a kite off into the air. So we're faced with a challenge, and uh, people are frustrated, that's for sure, and they want it to end. And the government um, is uh, ex- you know, exploring all options, and the military, just like when we had terror tunnels dug into Israel, we found, with God's help, a solution to that. We're looking into solutions now for the kites as well, and God willing, at some point it'll come to an end. But it's important for people out there to realize that even though, thank God, we're not experiencing loss of life, uh, loss of farms and loss of agriculture, loss of animal, livestock, animals. Uh, there is significant loss taking place, and we certainly appreciate everyone's prayers. We do pray for the people of Israel. We pray for the leaders to have wisdom, to make good decisions, and develop strategies. And it's it's really a frustrating situation when you've got a world-class, technologically advanced army, and they're struggling against a kite or a balloon that's being set on fire and released over a border fence and then you cut the string on the kite and it falls down and sets the crops on fire and it's so primitive in its technology and yet one of the strongest militaries in the world is having trouble finding a way to defeat it. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to imagine such a primitive uh, mode of warfare that's having success, but it's having success in burning the fields it's not having success in, in any way reducing our spirits, and we're strong, and we'll continue to fight with every challenge that comes our way. We also have challenges in the, in the north. Uh, we're just getting reports now of some things that are happening up there in terms of Syria and uh, possible reports of some kind of unmanned warcraft and air that might have gotten towards Israeli territory. So we're dealing with things on all fronts like Israel always has. 
and we'll continue to fight the good fight and have faith and pray and develop our military and deal with whatever challenges come our way. We do pray for the people in the land of Israel, the leaders of Israel. Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Sha'alu Shalom Yisrael. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of Israel. And let's get into this week's Torah portion, Rabbi. It is a double reading, a double portion. And you've taught us that in order to finish all the readings in one year before Sukkot, a feast of tabernacles at the fall time that sometimes because you take a break for holiday and do holiday readings on a Shabbat, you have to do a double reading. And so that's what this week's portion is. The names are Matot and Masay, and they come from the book of Numbers. This concludes the book of Numbers, chapters 30 through 36. And so it's a long reading for this week. And it begins with the very important idea of making a vow. And back in chapter 6, we learned about a Nazarite vow, which was a specific promise that a man or a woman could make to the Lord to not engage in certain things like drinking alcohol and cutting your hair and other things. And that was really for a designated period of time. But now we get to Numbers chapter 30, and it's how that you are to keep your vows. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're not going to do it, then don't do it. But talk about the importance here in chapter 30 about vows. I'm going to actually jump for a moment to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, when we gather in the synagogue at nighttime, the fast begins on the 10th of the Hebrew month of Tishrei. And the very first prayer that we say is called Kol Nidrei where we as a congregation stand before God and we nullify any vows that we might have made and haven't kept. That's how serious the issue of vows is in our faith and the words that we use and, and fulfilling our promises. That, that's how we start Yom Kippur. It's almost as if we say, how can we even begin to use our mouths to ask God for repentance and promise to be better if we haven't fulfilled our promises from this year? And therefore, this is taken very seriously. When a person says something and promises something, it has a reality to it. And either you have to fulfill it, or there are ways that the Torah gives us that you can find ways to get out of it by showing that you never meant it, and there's other mechanisms as well. But it's, it's so serious that actually in the very beginning of the portion, in chapter 30, verse 2, is a terminology that's used that we don't have anywhere else. It says that Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of all of Israel, saying, and it sort of gives you a seriousness of what's happening here. But some of the commentaries say that he's specifically talking to the heads of the tribes, because what are leaders notorious for, especially in our world of elections and, and, and democracy, is making promises and not keeping them. And Moses is telling them, you're going to be leaders, don't lead the people astray. Whatever you tell them you're going to do, you have to do. And that's why, specifically, he brings together the heads of the tribes. So it's a very, very serious group of laws. And I have to imagine that this is something which, which finds its place in the Christian faith as well, even though I'm not familiar with how that might be. The idea of honesty, keeping your promises, and being a person of character, a person who keeps your word, is very important in the Christian idea of how to live a holy life. And that's based upon, we believe, God is a covenant-making God, and He is a covenant-keeping God, and we want to be godly. And so, 
to make a vow or to make a promise to do something, you should do it. Or you make a promise not to do something, you should not do that thing so that people can consider you trustworthy. In the most famous sermon of the New Testament, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, given by Jesus at the Mount of Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. If you say you're going to do it, if you give a yes, then do it you say you're not going to do it, then don't. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And so the idea of keeping your vows to the Lord and to other people is very important. And as you begin to read the first few verses of Numbers chapter 30, Rabbi, I'm working on my Hebrew vocabulary here, and we learn the word neder, which is a positive vow, something you promise to do. And then iser, is a promise, something you say you will not do. And so there's a contrast that you're supposed to keep both promises. And the Christian commentaries talk about these two Hebrew words as equals and opposites, if you will, that they're both important. You're both supposed to keep your word, no matter whether you promise to do something, a nader, or promise not to do something, iser. So talk about the two sides of the coin, if you will. There are, there are two different elements that a person might uh, choose to do. One is, I want to take a positive action and do something. And the other one is, I want to prohibit things upon myself. And no one should think that either one is stronger or weaker. Both are taken seriously and both have to be fulfilled. So if a person, especially in the spiritual sense, accepts something upon himself to do or not to do, uh, that's something which is taken very, very seriously. And like I said before, you have to find a way out of it um, if you don't want to keep to it or feel that you can't keep to it. And this is something which we have as part of our lives. By the way, we even have in Jewish law, if you just accept upon yourself without even using the words of a vow to keep a certain observance, certain stringency, if you do that thing three times, it takes hold and you have to find a way out of it uh, via the rabbis or via the Jewish court uh, in order to uh, not be bound by it. So it's taken very seriously, both in the positive or in the negative sense. And as a rabbi, I know you have performed a wedding ceremony. As a pastor, of course, I have. And so when you think of a vow, one of the most obvious examples of that is the wedding vows that you say to your husband or to your wife that I will promise to love you and to be faithful to you and to honor you and all of those things. And one of the keys to a successful biblical marriage is honesty in the home and transparency and, and keeping relationship with one another and, and open communication. And so if we want that same kind of relationship with God, that we want honesty and openness, we know that he will be so we need to be honest before him. And so making a vow to your spouse is the obvious example. Making a vow to the Lord is as important or more important. And when we read in Ephesians chapter 5 of the New Testament, there's an idea of honesty in the marriage and honesty in the home and let the husband be a godly man and the wife be a godly woman and Part of that is the idea of keeping your vows. And we know from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it's better to not make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And so context here is important. And let's remind our listeners that the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. They've been wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years. They're about to inherit the land that God gave them. And why do you think timing-wise and location-wise 
the importance of a vow right now. You're on the the starting line of this new life in the promised land. Why is it so important now to be reminded of this? I think that all of the people have been living this magical life in the desert where God has taken care of all of their needs, and they didn't really have to work for a living. They didn't have businesses. They didn't have farms. They didn't have their own land. And now all of a sudden, they're going to enter into real life. They will have their own property. They will have to do business deals. They will have to sell their goods. And I think that real relationships start, both on a business level, on a neighbor level, and it's critical in that setting for people to understand that their word has to be their word. That's part one. And part two is even on a spiritual level, they've been in this bubble, in this greenhouse of, of spirituality. And now they're going to be more challenged spiritually uh, without the comforts of God's cloud of glory in the desert. And they may feel the need to accept certain things upon themselves or to withhold certain things from themselves. So it's critical as they enter into this real life that they understand the significance of their word as the first thing that they need to be careful about um, when they go into business. By the way, we have a tradition in the Talmud that the first question a person is asked, as it were, by God after a person passes away is were you honest in your business dealings? That's how important it is. We understand that the God is a God of truth, and therefore the one thing that he demands more than anything else uh, is truth. Later on in Numbers chapter 30, there's a distinction about a woman who is married and the role her husband plays in this, or a woman who is unmarried, the role her father plays in this. Explain that. So a lot of this is difficult for us to understand because it's cultural. Uh, it used to be that a woman was very much beholden, a, 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 almost like a, not a property in a negative sense because she was such a positive part of life, but the husband did have ownership, so to speak, over the wife. Is protection a good word? Protection is a good word, but it was also a world where women weren't out there dealing with things. So he was responsible for not just things that he brought into the marriage, but anything that she brought in, he now becomes responsible. I like the word responsible, actually. Okay. He takes full responsibility for all of that. And therefore, uh, just given the times, all of the business dealings and all of the livelihood was dealt with by the man. So uh, a husband, uh, when a woman said something in those times, uh, it was very much dependent on the agreement of her husband. That's just the way the society was. Uh, we have a teaching that the honor of a woman is inside the home. She's not necessarily out there on the streets. So when she made the vow, she knew that it was pending her husband's uh, agreement. Or in the case where she's not married, her father would play that role. So that's why it was that the ability for the father or the husband to nullify the vow was in place, because if they don't agree to the vow, the vow doesn't take place because she made it on condition to begin with that they were going to accept it. As we move into Numbers chapter 31, we're going to talk about a very troubling story and, and something that I want us to discuss but before we even talk about what the assignment is, according to my readings, Rabbi, this is the last assignment God gives Moses. And if we look back at all the roles that he has played, all the missions he has been on, from leaving Jethro's sheep to go back to the land of Egypt to command the release of the people to the Pharaoh, all through the plagues, all through the leadership in the wilderness, the receiving of Torah... All of the assignments God has given Moses, and now we come to the last one. This is really the end of an era. 
it's very dramatic. And let's remember, God even says it that way. God actually tells Moses in chapter 31, verse 2, take revenge from the people of Midian who earlier caused the Jewish people to sin by sending the women to entice the men that led to a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. And he says, take revenge, and then you will gather unto your nation, which, first of all, means that he will die. It's a beautiful terminology, which shows that life continues beyond death from this world, and the spiritual life continues. But God says it very clearly. This is the last thing I'm asking you to do, and then it's going to be time for you to move on to the next stage. And amazingly, you would think that maybe someone like Moses would say, well, I want to be around a little longer, and maybe I should take my time on this. It takes a while to get an army together and experience life a little longer. Immediately, Moses gathers people together and begins to carry out God's command. And we're going to talk about the fight against Midian in just a moment, but I liked how you translated chapter 31, verse 2, gathered to your nation. Usually in our English Bibles, we say gathered to your people, and sometimes gathered to your fathers. And what we have taught our folks, especially in the land of Israel, when we can visit tombs and graves, that these were family graves. And you would take the person who has passed away, you would wrap the body, you would anoint the body, much like the followers of Jesus did after he died on the cross. You would anoint the body with spices and oils, you would wrap it, you would place it in a tomb. And then one year later, on the anniversary of the death, you would go back and visit the person. And by that time, not to be too graphic, but the body has deteriorated. It has gone down to just the bones and the decaying process. So you would gather the bones together and place them in a box known as a, an ossuary. And the ossuaries would stay in the family tomb. And so you would have multiple generations buried in one tomb. And that's why it's called to be gathered to your people or gathered to your fathers. This is the terminology showing the burial process. Absolutely. And there are different words that are used in the Bible itself. In this case, the Hebrew word is amecha, which means your nation. There are cases when it says ne'esafel avotav, to his fathers. So each time different terminologies might be used, but the bottom line message of something continuing uh, beyond and not just passing away uh, is very significant. So as we get into chapter 31 in this assignment by the Lord to Moses to carry out a war, and some writers call it a holy war, which is an interesting phrase, noting what our contemporaries in the Muslim world use that term for, a holy war that the Lord was to bring punishment on the role of Midian when they caused the people of Israel to follow after Baal, the false prophet. And one of the people involved in this mission is Phineas, as we say in English, or Pinhas in Hebrew, the priest. And he was given 12,000 men as a part of this mission, soldiers. And so Moses is giving the orders, but Pinhas, the priest, is one of them doing the battle, doing the fighting. There are actually commentaries that say that the person who began the battle finishes the battle. And Pinchas was the one who initially killed the Jewish prince who was sinning together with a Midianite princess, and he killed them, and that was Pinchas, and therefore he continues and finishes off by leading the battle. One point to realize about Moses going ahead and uh, willingly uh, leading the com- or commanding this army is remember when Moses ran away from Egypt, he ran away to the land of Midian. 
and he found comfort there, and his wife was from there. And there could be real reasons or hesitations uh, for him not being involved. That could be why Moses doesn't actually go to war here and just commands it. But nevertheless, he does fulfill God's command, uh, despite the fact that this would certainly be very difficult, because it is going against the people that he did live with uh, for that period of time. Obviously, though, he'll be motivated by uh, avenging the sin which they committed. And it's very detailed, as we have seen in many other readings, about what happens to the captives. Some are killed, some are allowed to live, and it resulted in every man who was a Midianite soldier was killed. There were five Midianite kings who were killed, and an interesting character that we talked about in a previous Torah reading is Balaam, the prophet, who the kings of Midian tried to create a curse or an or a evil spell against the people of Israel. And Balaam and his donkey, we remember that whole story, and he couldn't curse the people of Israel. God wouldn't let him. But later on, we believe he is the one who instigated the seducing of the Israelite men by the Midianite women. And so Balaam is caught up in the battle, and he is killed in this process as well. And that was part of the, the revenge. Part of the revenge was to also root out those people uh, who were involved in instigating. And this idea of revenge is it's difficult for us. It's difficult for us to see the killing and the numbers and, and how they're commanded to kill in, in such great detail. And times, we just have to take a step back and realize this is not revenge out of anger. We don't like these people. They've hurt us, so let's hurt them. But it's fighting for the glory of God. Uh, God's uh, holiness has been desecrated uh, by this episode, and it's time to restore uh, God's greatness. And that's very much the way the people of Israel viewed it, and their army was an army that certainly fought physically, but also was very spiritual in nature, uh, because they're fighting a very spiritual fight. So some of us are called to serve in the military. I did, your son currently does, and so there is a military context where fighting the enemy, fighting a just cause, and fighting for the right is sometimes in a military context. But for most of us, most of the time, it's not a combat situation, but it's a moral situation. And Rabbi, is there a teaching here that sometimes it is right to fight, if you will, right to stand up for innocent victims, right to stand up against evil. Obviously, as we think back to the Shoah, the Holocaust, there were those who stood up for righteousness and fought the good fight, and many who did not. So is there a teaching for us here about sometimes we're called to a spiritual battle? There's no doubt that uh, we have to recognize that there are times when you know, there are things that are worth fighting for. King David says, God gives strength to his nation, and then God blesses his nation with peace. We have to fight sometimes in order to establish either our physical peace or to right spiritual wrongs, and the Bible does not hold back from that. There is plenty of bloodshed. There is plenty of warfare. It's not all uh, beautiful and not all peaceful, and that's because uh, in the world that we live in, there are these battles to fight, and uh, that continues uh, the story of the Jewish people till today. And the great wisdom teacher Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says there is a time for war and a time for peace and while we can't always pick that the Lord who is sovereign and omniscient he knows when that's time and so when we read Numbers chapter 31 some of us are 
are disturbed by the violence and the call to bring revenge upon the Midianites. But this is a holy war, and it's assigned by God to Moses, and it is his last assignment, as we've already mentioned. And I think it is important that the last assignment for Moses is you're not going to get to go into the promised land, but your people are, and I don't want them tempted by these false God worshipers. I want that temptation removed so when they enter the promised land, they can focus on me, the one true God. Very much so, and, and, and removing impurity from the world and removing those negative spiritual forces of the world, negative forces that we don't necessarily see. Uh, but are out there, that's something which God very much has instructed us about, and that's something which, again, is a, a, a recurring theme uh, in the Bible. This moves us into the next chapter, chapter 32 of Numbers, and we're talking about the inheritance of the tribes, the land that each of the 12 tribes get. And we begin chapter 32, and it talks about the tribes of Reuben and Gad, that they had large herds and flocks, and so they wanted to remain on the east side of the Jordan River, what's now called the country of Jordan, instead of the west side of the Jordan River, now the country of Israel, because they had so much land and so many animals and it was suitable land for pastures. And so Moses is concerned because he's afraid they're not going to join in battle in the west side of the river where there's battles that are going to take place to conquer the Canaanites who live in the promised land. So Moses is afraid they're going to sit out and not participate with their brothers. The first question we have to ask when we see this story is, what are they doing? God has given you a promised land in the land of Israel, and you're asking for things on the other side. And the very first words of chapter 32 really establish it. It says in Hebrew, umikneirav, they had a lot of flock. They had a lot of physical, material things. And they were attracted to what they saw on that side of the land. That's a negative. Uh, they were not looking for the spiritual. God has promised them this land on the other side of the Jordan. They had a lot of physical uh, property, and they wanted to stay on that side where they felt it would be best for them. And Moses is willing to grant them that. If you don't want the land of Israel, you're not going to get the land of Israel. But that does not excuse you uh, from your responsibilities. And Moses says this, this, this uh, slogan, uh, which I've actually used in even politics in Israel, where he says the words, uh, are you going to stay over here and uh, while your brothers go to war? Or are your brothers going to go to war? That's Moses' first reaction when he, when he hears this request. He can't even believe necessarily that he's hearing it, uh, but you're part of the nation of Israel. You can't just opt out and not be part of what they're doing. This is in chapter 32, verse 6. He says to them, you can't sit here while they're, you want to sit here and enjoy your material goods, that's fine. But you have to come fight. And they agree uh, to go fight on the front lines. They agree to make sure that everybody is settled in the land of Israel, and then they'll come back home. By the way, Pastor, uh, that means they were so motivated to stay on the other side of the Jordan River, they were willing to go away from home and ended up being 14 years of fighting, 14 years of settling before they come back. That's how much the appeal of the physical nature of that land was to them. And as you say, Moses agrees to their request, 
And he says in Numbers 32, verse 20, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the Lord is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel, and this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, you have sinned against the Lord, and your sin will find you out. So here, the people have to actually live out the principle of keeping your vow that was taught back in chapter 30. Exactly. And uh, he makes it specifically conditional on that. And they were good to their word, and they, and they did go in with them. Um, but yes, Moses makes sure that they do follow the exact commands about the vow that we had before. We continue down through chapter 32, and we get into chapter 33, which we have called the travel diary of the people of Israel as they are entering into the promised land. And Rabbi, this is one of those chapters of your Bible, Numbers 33, that you cannot study without a map in your hand. And it has to be an ancient map, a biblical map. It'd be cool to do with an ancient map, a modern Israel map, and your scriptures, chapter 33. But you can't study all these places, especially for Americans who've never been to the land and don't understand the geography. There's no way to understand these places unless you've got a map to show you the route that the people took. That's correct. And it's important to note that there was moving forward and there was moving backward. In fact, that can be learned in chapter 33, verse 2. It says that Moshe, uh, Moses wrote there, I don't know how the English translated precisely, but uh, the place that they went from and the place that they went to. And then at the end of that verse, he says, and these are the places that they went to from the places they went from. It reverses the order. And the commentaries talk about that there are two different types of travels that are defined, that are described here. One is moving forward, and others is there are times they took steps backwards, and for all kinds of reasons. Um, but their focus was always on the goal. Um, they were moving forward towards the promised land, and, and they knew that. There are times in life, as you're heading towards your goal, you have ups, you have downs, you go forward, you go backwards. Uh, God gives you setbacks sometimes and challenges for you to overcome. But the key is to always keep your focus on the goal, not to let the moments which you were brought down bring you down too much. Uh, learn the lessons from them, and then keep moving forward. And one incredible point which the commentaries make is that there are 42 places that they travel to in the, in the desert, and they're all described here. And we have in our tradition that there's a 42-letter name of God, uh, which is like one of the holiest names of God. And the idea is they were traveling towards completion. They were traveling towards you know, reaching a connection with God. And along the way, like I said, there are ups, there are downs, but you just keep moving forward, and uh, that's what the people of Israel were able to do. And that's what we can learn uh, from this section, even if we don't have the map in front of us, just the lessons from it. But yes, absolutely, uh, it would help to sit and really dot it all and, and see the exact route which they took. Well, there's a lot of reactions to what you just said. First of all, let me tell you that my English Bible, Numbers 33, verse 2, and Moses recorded their starting places is how they translate it. Okay. And then you just said a 42-letter name of God. What is that? <laughs> 
now you're putting me on the spot. Uh, there's, there's mysticism behind this, which is really difficult to understand. There's all kinds of different names that capture different aspects of God. And this is one of those examples where you just have to, on a certain level, uh, understand that you can't understand. Uh, there's some deep spiritual meaning uh, behind it. And uh, our goal is just to do the best that we can and connect to God, even if we don't understand all the elements of that name. As we get to the end of chapter 33, verse 50, the Lord spoke to Moses after mentioning all of these places that they traveled. This is what the Lord said in the plains of Moab. So this is again on the east side of the Jordan River, modern country of Jordan today. This is what the Lord said to Moses, verse 51, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross over the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and their molten images and their high places. These are idols and altars to pagan gods. And you shall take possession of the land and live in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. So the promise is Moses is telling the people they get to go over and enjoy the blessing of the land, even though he does not get to do so, which I want you to comment on. But I'll remind our listeners back to that long list of places in chapter 33. This is a teaching, I believe, that wherever we are, God has a plan for that place. He has a teaching. He has a lesson. He has growth for us. It may be a comfortable place or an uncomfortable place, but the God who is sovereign always has his children in his mind and in his plan. That's for sure. And that verse, which we see over here, is so critical because that's actually one of the sources for the command to live in Israel. You can live in other places, and God sends us to other places. And we have our thousands of years in exile. But the command is, as you defined it so beautifully in verse 54, to take inheritance of the land, to settle the land. This is the place uh, where we're supposed to be. And in order to do so, though, there has to be a spiritual existence, and that means getting rid of all the idolatry, getting everything pagan out of that land. Now we get to chapter 34, and I think it's a really neat thing, again, to do with the map, is God tells Moses these are the boundaries of the promised land. Verse 2 says, when you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan, according to its borders. And then the Lord explains the borders, which I'll read in a moment. I think I should remind our listeners that a guy named Canaan was a grandson of Noah. So when Noah came off the ark with his wife, three sons, three daughters-in-law, the whole world was repopulated. And the people who owned the land called it after themselves. And so a grandson of Noah was named Canaan. And so he owned the land that we now call the promised land or Israel. So that's why it's called the land of Canaan. The people who live in Canaan are the Canaanites. And this is the land that God says is the borders. Verse 3 talks about the southern sector. And then it talks in verse 4, it turns direction from the south. And then in verse 6, it talks about the western border. In verse 7, it talks about the northern border. And so, Rabbi, we don't have a map in front of us because that's not how radio works. But give us a little bit of comparison of the size of this promised land versus what we see on the modern map in the state of Israel today. Well, people might be disappointed when they hear about this, but the, the promised land to Israel is actually quite uh, larger in nature than uh, what we actually have in our borders, certainly uh, further to the north. 
actually not going as far to the south. Uh, a lot, for example, which is sort of a Israeli uh, a Miami Beach, if you would, um, where the, the water town actually is not part of the biblical borders, but the borders also uh, continue uh, beyond on the eastern side, uh, beyond what we have. And that's difficult. It actually creates halachic uh, issues of Jewish law at times, when you have to know what laws apply where. But there's no doubt that the map, the biblical map, and we do actually have some books that actually show them, it's a very different picture than the little, little sliver uh, that you see uh, today and expands to a much more area. And there's no doubt that in the times of King David, that was expanded even further. Uh, and we talk about holiness being in all of these lands. So uh, what we have today is biblical for sure, and there's, there's more to it. And one point that we have to make is that one part which is certainly a part of these boundaries is what we call Judea and Samaria, which the world calls the West Bank. Uh, that was an integral, it was the heartland uh, of, of, the, of the land of Israel and the Jewish homeland. And it's a tragedy uh, that we live in a time where it's controversial and up for discussion. It's sad to hear people calling it occupied. How do you occupy a land which was yours and yours for thousands of years? But nevertheless, it is amazing to see some of the landmarks described, some of the bodies of water and other boundaries, and to be able to look at a map today and see exactly uh, where that is. We also have maps, by the way, which show exactly where the tribes were as the tribes uh, later on the prophets divide up the land. And you can see it all come together, how uh, it all happened. Uh, we living in Israel today, we can know exactly which areas we're driving in, uh, which tribes you actually have. The regional councils, our regional councils, uh, our regional council where I live is the regional council of Judah. You can go to the regional council of Benjamin, the regional council of Asher. Uh, it's all based on these tribes. So it's pretty remarkable to live in a place which still has those symbolic terminologies, even if it's not the exact borders that were laid out in the Bible. So teach our American Christian audience. You live in Bet Shemesh, the name of your town. It's a, it's a beautiful, big city, actually. But you can plot that on the biblical map that's described here in the book of Numbers. Absolutely. You can actually uh, make the map and show exactly uh, where Beit Shemesh today is, and it actually goes back to uh, biblical uh, Beit Shemesh uh, as well. It's mentioned straight there in the prophets. We are now, there's, there's extreme, extreme excavations going on around our city, and they are unearthing things from biblical times, and it's, it's just special uh, to see that we're living in a place where our ancestors lived in those biblical times. Now let's move into chapter 35 of the book of Numbers, and it begins talking about the tribe of Levi, the Levites. And as we've learned, this tribe is given responsibility for the leadership in the temple. They're part of the priestly system, and in the tabernacle first, and then later in the temple, they're responsible for the utensils and the operations, if you will, of the places of worship. But the Levites were not given land as a tribe so they live in the areas of all the different tribes but the Levites were given certain cities and certain pasture lands within the tribes of other or the territories of other tribes so this is a place where you could have some conflict why are you living here you're not one of us talk about the whole situation so first of all the most important lesson is because the Levites 
were designated to be the spiritual leaders, that's why they couldn't have ownership of land ownership of their own. Uh, what a lesson in terms of we don't even realize how the possessions that we have and the worries that we have in our minds, how that impacts our spirituality. And they needed to be free completely to focus only on the spiritual. The people of Israel understood that they were responsible for taking care of those Levites. These are the people who are their spiritual leaders. And there was an unwritten contract, basically, that they would have land, cities in their areas, uh, but they would not be agricultural uh, workers. They were not farmers. They were focused on the spiritual, and the people accepted that. Uh, they gave them their tithes. There was a very beautiful relationship uh, which was established uh, between the two. The idea that we're out there working, we're out there bringing in the livelihood, and then these are the spiritual leaders who need to be taken care of, and that's our responsibility to make sure that we have those spiritual leaders and that we take care of them properly. So there was a tremendous peace uh, that existed uh, among these groups, and they really understood exactly how these division of responsibilities was supposed to work. Numbers 35 verse 7 says that there will be 48 cities along with pasture lands that will be given to the Levites. And part of these are later called cities of refuge. And this is a concept that we don't really understand. And we have the idea, Rabbi, you know, here in America about sanctuary cities and how people don't like that term. If you are a defender of the border or of legal immigration. They don't like the term sanctuary city, but that's somehow connected or related to this idea of a city of refuge. So explain it to us biblically and then sort of compare it to today's world. Sure. The biblical cities of refuge were uh, places to go for people who killed other people uh, accidentally. Uh, if somebody uh, was working in the field and or chopping down a tree and the handle and axe separated from one another and somehow someone got killed, uh, that's where you could run to uh, to be a place of refuge as it's defined uh, in chapter 35, uh, verse 12. Uh, it's a place of refuge uh, because by Jewish law, the relatives of a person who was murdered has the right to go and kill him. It's almost, I mean, it sounds like a little bit of a game of tag. Uh, they can run after him and kill him for killing the relative accidentally, and they're allowed to do so, but they can't do so if the person has gone to the city of refuge. And the, the, the lesson that we're supposed to learn from all of this is, first and foremost, uh, being careful about not being negligent. Life is important, and, and you have to be careful about how you do anything with anything dangerous or anything that potentially hurts someone and take life seriously. And the second level, though, is on a spiritual level, is that if God brought about the death of another person through you, there must be some kind of a flaw in you, and therefore you have to go into a spiritual exile and, and do repentance uh, there. So there's two different dimensions uh, to what's happening over there, and there were cities that were set aside as cities of refuge with signs pointing the people to go there, and the people who lived in the cities of refuge knew that accidental murderers might come to their cities, and they were supposed to take care of them. It's just a fascinating uh, description of uh, a culture that's foreign to us, uh, but nevertheless, we have punishments for people who kill intentionally, and then there's also ramifications for those who kill unintentionally. And what about the idea of sanctuary cities today? Could that be defended by this biblical text? So, <laughs> you're 
you're going to try to drag me into American politics now, and I can't, I can't take that bite. <laughs> um, but but I, I will say that I certainly trust the American political establishment to figure out what's, what's best, and uh, I wouldn't necessarily draw the comparison, although, to over here, because the cities of refuge over here were really for people who killed uh, accidentally, and that's why there were responsibilities of the people to take care of them. It was an establishment that was set up beforehand, and uh, you know, I'll leave the immigration debate in America to Americans to debate. You can listen to Smart Talk with Trey Graham Sunday afternoons at 4 p.m. on the Word 100.7 FM. We'll talk about immigration a lot on that program, but the rabbi has dodged my question here on the podcast. <laughs> Let's finish the book of Numbers, chapter 36. This is an interesting situation. If we remember back to chapter 27, there was a situation with the daughters of Zalafahad that they wanted to inherit the land. They were daughters of the father, and the father passed away, and he had no brother and no uncle to inherit the land. So the daughters wanted to inherit the land, and they were allowed to do so. Well, now... What do you do with those daughters when they marry men from other tribes? Whose property does it belong to? Their original tribe or their new tribe? And so it's another interesting legal debate that Moses has to resolve. But I also think it shows the importance of ownership of land, that territory was so important to their identity That was true 3,000 years ago. It's even true today. That's why all the disputes over the occupied territories, as it's called, because land is valuable. So talk about biblical, the the dispute of the legal ownership, but then also the importance of land. So especially when it comes to land of Israel, uh, I think that your point is true for all land. But here they were talking about taking God's inheritance. This is a spiritual land that God is handing to them, and everybody wants a stake in that. So who's owning it? Who has it? Uh, this all has to be laid out very clearly. And by the way, that's why it's critical. I mean, the Bible is one of the first sources for laws of any kind of a civilized, organized society where you have a body of laws uh, because there's always going to be disputes over land and people want to have a connection to specific lands, uh, lands that are passed down from generation to generation, and therefore there has to be an orderly uh, rule of law uh, to deal with those conflicts. That's exactly what happens over here. But, but most importantly from over here, you take the passion they had for the land of Israel, how much they wanted to have their stake in that land, what people were willing to give up and certainly throughout our history, people have given up for the land based on the passion uh, that we see over here. And that's why when I see this, and I see them discussing who is the owner, how does it work, everybody wants a piece of it. It just inspires me, and it also makes me so proud that I get to live in Israel today. This does conclude the reading of Bamidbar, which is the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers. And it closes with the very last verse, which is 3613. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So it's close to the time that Moses will die, close to the time that the people will be allowed to enter and possess the promised land. So Rabbi, 36 chapters, a long book. Give us a wrap-up of the whole book of Numbers. This is really the transitional book when they go from the utopia on a certain level of Mount Sinai and the Exodus and getting the laws and then the transition to getting to the land of Israel with all of the challenges, people complaining, people whining, people being punished. 
It's 40 years in the desert that are captured here. And the, and the book only really focuses on the first few years and the last few years. But uh, we get a sense for what life was like uh, in the desert. And it really is this transition that takes us from this uh, fake life of, of wonderful fake life of spirituality and now transitioning towards the ups and downs and challenges of daily physical life while trying to live in a spiritual realm. And that's really the way I see this book. Uh, just runs, that theme runs from beginning to end. And uh, it ends with the words, these are the commandments that God taught Moses. Uh, they're on the Jordan River, uh, right near Jericho. You feel that they're on their way in, and that's going to pave the way for Moses' last will and testament, which comes in the book of Deuteronomy. And we will begin our study of the book of Deuteronomy next week on our next Torah reading. And Rabbi, as always, thanks for studying the Word of God together, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Shabbat Shalom to you and all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.